From our earliest stories and histories, leaders have been portrayed as fearless and brave. But what does courage require of us now, when its price may not be measured merely in physical confrontation alone, but in many other significant risks to identity, to status, to position? Today, we're called to explore courage in a contemporary world, one that has its own dangers and its own demands. Hello, I'm John Burkhardt. I chair the board of directors for the Alliance of Leadership Fellows, an organization which is committed to nurturing, promoting, and building connections between leaders who pursue social justice. These efforts take place in communities, within their organizations, within and between societies, and everywhere around the world. And the Alliance, on a biennial basis, presents the Lorraine R. Matusak Award for Courageous Leadership. In 2021, a record number of nominations, 64 from all parts of the globe, were entered for this award, and an independent panel of distinguished scholars and leaders carefully reviewed every nomination and all the supporting materials that were given us. I have to say that those that were identified for their work and brought to the attention of the committee must be thanked, must be recognized for all that they do, the difference they make everywhere. Still, the committee recommended three honorees as deserving of special attention for what each is doing to bring greater economic, political, and social progress to their communities and to the world. And today we're going to be given a chance to hear from these three exemplary individuals as they talk together about their work and the courage that they found to pursue it. You're going to meet Zabu Zakoda of Durban, South Africa, Shirley Sherrod of Albany, Georgia in the United States, and Kekesha Basso of Toronto, Canada. Kekesha has had a tremendous impact in her 21 years as she's advocated for climate change, equal rights for women, and the voices of youth around the world. She does her primary work through the Green Hope Foundation of Toronto, Canada, and we hope she'll speak of that a little bit. Already at her relatively young age, she's been recognized for her leadership and her advocacy across Canada and around the globe with designations including the International Children's Peace Prize and designation as a United Nations Human Rights Champion in 2016. Our good friend Shirley Sherrod has been a staunch defender of equal rights for black farmers, minorities, in the United States and for social justice everywhere. She's been a pioneer in the community food movement and has had a number of high level appointments in both state and federal positions where she's consistently demonstrated integrity and courage in public service. And we're proud to say among her many recognitions, Shirley was named a 1993 Kellogg National Leadership Fellow. Sapu Zakode is an African-wide leader of a NGO bringing issues of equitable economy, healthcare, 
and he represents the shack dwellers movement across South Africa and the African continent. His organization is built on the commitment and determination of 80,000 members and affiliates. As you hear his story, you'll, you'll recognize not only a, the amazing leadership skills it takes to influence a movement of such breadth and importance, but also the courage it demands. And his response to these challenges, Sabu was chosen to receive the 2021 Lorraine Armatusat Courageous Leadership Award. And these three individuals represent the kind of courage that Dr. Matusak described to us, individuals who will boldly take a risk to stand up for what's right and for what's just, who will work for the common good and will take an unpopular stand, even if doing so can jeopardize their jobs, cost them uh, their friends, or cast them in an unpopular light. They act authentically and they speak up when silence would mean colluding with the problem. In this conversation, we are very fortunate to have Juana Bordas with us, herself a committed leader and an acclaimed author who will moderate the conversation between our three honorees. Juana is president of Mestiza Leadership International. And I have to thank you, Juana, for your courageous leadership over many, many years and your unfailing generosity your advocacy, and you're willing to nurture young leaders whenever you come across them. We simply couldn't find a better moderator for this conversation. The Alliance of Leadership Fellows has several partners in this effort uh, who have joined us in the work that we do, including the International Leadership Association. These three uh, honorees were recognized at the International Conference of ILA in Geneva, Switzerland, just a few weeks ago. If you want to know more about the Alliance of Leadership Fellows, you can consult our website, which is found at allianceofleadershipfellows.org. Juana, may I now turn this over to you for your expert facilitation and thank again these wonderful honorees who have gathered together. We're so interested in what they have to say. John, thank you so much. And it's such an honor to be with the three of you. You know, today we're facing such a fragile world and so many things that we have to address as leaders. And I'm hoping that our conversation inspires others, gets them to answer the call to leadership and to have more courage themselves. We, I hope this will ignite people to really step up to another level of leadership. You know, the word courage actually comes from the word heart core from French and Latin. And I think all of us as leaders, all of you are motivated by this heart, this, this love for humanity, this desire to uplift people. And so we gather together today in community to talk about these stories in hopes that especially our younger generation will follow in the footsteps that you all have so bravely um, forged. So I wanna to begin today talking a little bit about you and your story and what is it about you that inspired you to do the work that you do and to have the courage to carry it forward. And so let us start with um, Sawu. Um, please tell us a little bit about yourself and we're gonna have each panelist take about five minutes to kind of tell your story, which people will remember and what drives that passion for courage that you have. 
Thank you so much, uh, Program Director. I want to greet all the board members of the Alliance that are here and everyone that is watching. My name again is Sibu Zikode. I am the co-founder of the Shank Dwellers Movement of South Africa. Abathali Basemjondolo. Abathali has become the biggest social movement to have emerged in post-apartheid South Africa. Our membership has just exceeded 100,000 members from around South Africa. So the story that I carry, um, it's in, it's deep down from my vein. I actually uh, came across with the shared settlements in Durban's um, urban poor. It's called the Kennedy Road Settlement where I um, joined the settlement. Now the settlement has hardly any access to water and sanitation. There's hardly any road access, no refuge collection, no um, uh, electricity. So people find it very difficult to uh, have sources of energy. They will use candles, for instance, as a source of light. They will use paraffin stoves as a source of, uh, of, of cooking. Now, as a result uh, that there is no um, electricity, a lot of people have been burned to ashes in this shack fire. Imagine mm -hmm. if one family is on fire suddenly the entire community is wiped with fire and people are left into ashes. So I have experienced this and the moment in which people are killed in this shark fire, in which small children get killed in shark fires, left me with no choice but to do something. The thing I want to tell you is my heart is already touched by the kind of work you're doing that many people perhaps in other countries don't have an opportunity to do. Um, Shirley, shall we go ahead uh, with you sharing a little bit about your story and what you've been able to, to accomplish through the passion that you have? What drives that courageous leadership for you? I am Shirley Sherrod, and I'm, I'm a, a native of the area where I live and work. That was not my intention. I grew up on a farm in uh, rural southwest Georgia, and I also grew up during the Jim Crow era uh, here in the South. So I, my goal was to not only leave the farm, but to leave the South, to go to an area of the country where I thought everyone was free. My goal was to try to go live my life in the North. And I was planning that as I was um, dealing with all of the issues of being a, a senior uh, in high school and getting ready to graduate, applying to colleges. And then some, um, something that shook my world happened. My father was murdered during March of my senior year by a white farmer who was not uh, prosecuted. My, he shot him and my father lingered and died 10 days later, which gave some time to to think, I actually thought my father would live. I did not think he would die. But on the night of his death, um, as our house filled with people, my mother was pregnant with my brother. My father wanted a son so bad and there, there were five girls. The youngest girl was eight. And he convinced her to try one more time for this boy. So he was <laughs> really, really happy because he just told everyone this was the son. Um, so as our house filled with people uh, trying to comfort us, I needed to get away from everybody. And I went into a room and I was just praying, praying, asking God, please help me. 
please help me figure out what to do. I felt I had to do something. And the thought just came into my mind. You can give up your dreams of living your life in the North. You can stay in the South and devote your life to working for change. Um, so I felt a calmness. I didn't know what I would do, but then the civil rights movement, people from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee came in to help us start the movement. And my work started, I saw then that this was the path I could take to live true, true to the commitment that I made. So when you make a commitment to stay, before that, I was not interested mm. in all that was going on around me. But now that I had a commitment to stay and work, you know, looking at farming, looking at the fact that we were landowners, looking at people who were sharecropping, looking at the whole system was part of what came along with trying to get registered to vote or trying to help um, young people integrate the white schools and, and the fight for other rights that we had to, to make during those days. So I stayed and <clears throat> became even more interested in farming. Really, what, what year is this? Just to give it some context for our younger people. Yes, this was 1965. 1965. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, I, I ended up, I'll never forget the first cooperative I developed. It was in my home county. And I had to teach, I had to get farmers to agree to be trained to raise hogs as they were planning to get some from the Heifer Project. <clears throat> they said, we know how to raise hogs. <laughs> of course they didn't. And then when the hogs came and someone from the Heifer Project came, they had to agree to getting training. But back then, Extension was so racist, I couldn't get anyone from the University of Georgia Extension program in. So I'm, you know, I'm from a farm family. I had um, one of my uncles was an Extension agent. Um, two others were vocational ag teachers. So I prepared myself to teach these farmers how to raise hogs. And after my first session with them, they, I remember one of them saying, you really know how to raise hogs, don't you? I just <laughs> never have any more trouble with any of A them. A leader has to do what they have to do, correct? <laughs> That's right. Wow. Surely I've never heard this kind of story before, raising hogs. It's a beautiful story. You know, I started talking about when to clip eye teeth and when to castrate and all of this. So, you know, they felt I knew just what I was doing. I knew a lot. I didn't know everything, but I knew enough to teach them. Wow. Anyway, that work led to working um, as we were working in the civil rights movement and people were being kicked off the land owned by white people. We decided we needed to come up with an answer to that. So during the summer of 1968, we sent seven people, one, my husband was one of the seven, to Israel to look at how they were resettling their people. They came back with the information plus the information we had gathered and we created New Communities Inc. in 1969, which became the first community land trust in this country. There are about 280 to 300 of them existing now and that number is growing. So these groups, some of them are in New York City and Miami and other major cities um, are using the model we created 
for new communities. Now we got our hands on 6,000 acres and planned a total community, but we also ran into all of the racism and the discrimination that even had people shooting at, at some of our buildings. So that's a, a really, really long story. Yeah. Because of that discrimination though, we lost the land in um, 1985. And I started working then with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which gave me the opportunity to not only work with farmers in Georgia, but to work across the South with, with farmers as we developed cooperatives, we, we created markets and worked on black land loss. We were using, losing rather so much land as black people that the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights had predicted that unless something was done about discrimination at USDA, by the year 2000, there'd be virtually no Black-owned farms. Uh, eventually, a lawsuit had to be filed. There's a lot of work that I did. Well, Shirley, one of the things I'd really like to commend you for, and I think is so important, is that all of us know that social change, that addressing some of these issues takes a lifetime. And yes. so we need to, you know, thank you. And also for young people to know that, you know, it's one step at a time and you went from, you know, your community into the whole South and so forth. And I think that that's another thing about courageous leadership. It ignites other people to want to help and to want to carry that movement forward and nothing more important than having the land. So, yes. so can we go back to you? Uh, how, how is the technology in South Africa now? Can you hear me? Sabu? You're muted. Um, I think he's still frozen, yes? David, is he frozen? Hello? Yeah, I, think, I, think he's, I think he's frozen right now. Okay, why don't you help back. him and we'll move on. Um, let's pray to the technology God that we get some energy going here. So we've been to South Africa, we've been to rural Georgia, and now we get to go to uh, Canada. And um, I'm so happy to have, and help me again with your name. Kekesha. Kekesha with us because she's going to represent the younger generation and intergenerational leadership is the way we're going to get there by passing the baton to the younger leaders and them teaching us how to keep our keep our energy and our motivation going. Please tell us about your work and also the passion that drives you to be a courageous leader. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Kekesha. I'm a United Nations human rights champion and founder president of Green Hope Foundation, which is a global social innovation enterprise working across 25 countries with over 225,000 people to educate, engage and empower them in the sustainable development process. My journey started when I was seven years old, when I saw the image of a dead bird whose belly was full of plastic, I was deeply disturbed by that. And I realized that I had to do something to stop that from happening again. It was also around that time that I attended a lecture by environmentalist Robert Swan. And he had said that the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. And that is what prompted me to plant my first tree on my eighth birthday, which is also World Environment Day. So I felt oh. I was preordained 
I, I just love how the personal purpose comes out, like Shirley actually getting a call from the spirit and you being able to see that and you being born on that day. I believe that we all have a purpose and, and that it unfolds like that. Please continue. It's beautiful. For sure. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that my mom taught me as well, that every single person comes to this earth with a mission and that uh, being born on World Environment Day, that was definitely a very big sign that that was so my purpose as uh -huh. well. Uh, and I was fortunate to grow up in a family where empathy was deeply valued, empathy for people and planets. So I learned from my parents and my grandparents that every action of mine and anyone else's really had to take into account people and planet. And that is why when I saw that image of the dead bird with its belly full of plastic, I was so deeply disturbed because that was uh, my introduction to how not normal uh, and how unempathetic the world uh, can actually be. Mm -hmm. So I worked on the ground for uh, about four years before the United Nations caught hold of the work I was doing and I was invited to speak at my first UN conference. And then the following year, in how old were you then? I was 11 years old. <laughs> and then the following year in 2012, at the age of 12, I was the youngest uh, delegate at the Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit in Brazil. And that was the largest sustainable development conference of the time. And you had 50,000 delegates and only five people under the age of 18. So I really didn't like that lack of inclusivity of children. And that was when I started, I founded Green Hope Foundation to really provide this platform of learning that translates into localized ground level actions. And as I continued my work, I began to see how all of our world's challenges were related. So if I was working for environmental justice, I could not ignore how uh, environmental degradation affected uh, women and girls more, how uh, they created a lack of peace, how uh, lack of access to clean water and sanitation, how lack of access to clean energy all intersected with uh, really inequalities and environmental degradation. So my work and that of Green Hope Foundation, given that we work across 25 countries, really spans uh, the entire sustainable development spectrum. And we work to localize the sustainable development goals. So whether that is uh, providing uh, toilets and building toilets for communities with lack of access to clean water and sanitation, and also building deep bore tube balls to provide them with clean water or uh, powering, soul, uh, powering computer literacy and climate resilience education by installing solar grids in homes and schools and uh, installing solar street lights to create safe spaces for women and girls or uh, you know, having mass plantations of mangroves to not just rebuild the fragile coastal ecosystems, but also protect the communities within them from climate change and these sea storms, or, you know, to disarmament education, to uh, work on nuclear disarmament. Our work is really broad, but at the end of the day, our actions really seek to adopt a symbiotic eco-human lens that allows us to really rebuild our planet's ecosystems and also protect uh, people depending on them at the same time to really create a sustainable, equitable, peaceful and nuclear weapons free world for all. 
Um, it sounds like uh, that, that you were born from when you started Green Hope and did all that at nine years old, you were born with some sort of courage. But how can we define courageous leadership for others and how can we encourage, how do you get young people to get involved and to take the stands that you've taken? Well, for me, you know, just to reiterate that when I heard that quote that the greatest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it, I think that relates very well to this whole dialogue on courageous leadership, because at the end of the day, someone has to take that first step. And, you know, it's really daunting sometimes to take that first step. But if you really are passionate about an issue and want to bring about change, then you have to realize that, you know, it has to be you to take that first step. And for me and Green Hope Foundation and, you know, the communities that we work with, it's like every single day we choose to take that first step and make sure that we do our bit as responsible, empathetic global citizens to uh, bring about change. And I think that uh, what needs to be said to not just inspire young people, but really anyone uh, else is that we need to ask ourselves, what have I done to uh, help the planet? What have I done to help someone else or to bring a smile on someone's face? And, you know, if your conscience will really give you that answer, and if you're satisfied with that answer, then, you know, you have done something. And if not, then it's really, uh, the onus is really on you to go out there and bring about change. So it's really about what uh, helps you sleep at night and what, uh, how how you're able to bring a smile on someone's face and what you've been able to do for the planet. And I think really that defines courageous uh, leadership that no matter what the challenges and the obstacles are, you still go ahead because you have that passion for creating a better world uh, for all, just bringing about the smallest uh, change to bring a smile on someone's face or help the planet. So what I hear you saying is that it's not only the large things that we do, uh, in order to create a more equitable and social world and also to take care of our planet. But it's the day-to-day -day practice of leadership, of, of sharing that with others, and that that will kind of um, nurture that same kind of leadership in other people. And certainly by your example, by the examples of the, of the three of you, that gives people the courage to keep keep on keeping on, keep on taking one step at a time. Shirley, how about you? What do you think about courage, courage you know? Yes, yeah, so I've, I've always felt that it was never about me. It's about the people and, and the work and the things we were trying to accomplish. So I've always tried to work to keep everyone, to bring everyone along together and the support, um, whatever leadership um, is, is available in, uh, on the local level. Um, and then as, as Kekesha said, you have to step up when that time comes to step up. I can remember, you know, I don't, I feel I'm, I'm not a singer, right? But I can remember being in a meeting and a song was necessary. And then someone says, Shirley, uh, you lead it. Oh my goodness. But I, <laughs> I was surprised at myself when I stepped out in the center and started leading a song. You know, it's an example. You have to do what you have to do as you are, you're working with communities. The courage you show 
helps them to get the courage to do the things that that they are afraid of doing or never thought they would do but they you know it, it helps them to step out and and um, and move forward with with um, the goals that you're trying to accomplish so bringing keeping people informed and keeping helping them to gain knowledge that knowledge on the local level is what's needed to push a movement forward well, you know, the, um, when you were talking like that and you were talking about song, it is really true for me that part of courage is helping people celebrate their successes and keep it's that celebration, that singing that we've achieved something. Because, you know, I always think of the civil rights movement that we had to keep working for something. We have to keep working for something that we will never see actualized in our lifetime. And yeah. so how do you keep people motivated day after day, uh, like uh, Keisha was saying, so that they keep moving on and every day build their leadership skills? So Sabu, can you hear us now? I don't hear him. <laughs> well, we're going to yes, keep going. Yes. Oh, you're yes, there. Yes, I can hear you. Yeah, oh, yeah, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We will put your we will put a picture up when you're speaking on on the tape. Tell us a little bit again. We were talking about your story and about the fires and how that touched your heart and made you feel like I have to do something about this. Um, continue with your story a little bit and then tell us a little bit about what courage is for you. Yes, uh, thank you for that. I mean, the last part of my story is when there was um, a six month baby who was sleeping in this uh, slum, in these uh, shacks um, in Devon's Kennedy Road. And the mommy just went out a little bit in like a couple of minutes. When the mommy came back, the baby was bleeding um, um, on her hair. And suddenly the mommy discovered that the baby was beaten by a rat and the baby passed on. And those are circumstances that really forced me to stand up and say a human being can no longer be no. allowed to live like this. So many slum areas from around the world are facing these um, uh, threatening living conditions where they lose their babies, where they lose their, leave their, uh, lose their loved ones, simply because of the substandard living conditions under which they are subjected to. So driven by this passion, so I started organizing mostly young people, women and everybody else. And we said enough was enough. That was the beginning of the organization of the Shark Dwellers Movement, Abahlari, who then took up the challenge of homelessness and landlessness as the, uh, as the um, something that we thought we will commit ourselves. So I am happy to say today, at least thousands of families have been safe from evictions that are often taking place uh, in a scale such as what Shelley was describing, um, where evictions are, you know, are violent and are unlawful. Um, the states and the municipalities are not held accountable, but because of the courage and the unit and the determination of the shack dwellers who have now begun to realize and recognize that they are uh, have to stand up for, for themselves. So th this is the journey that really um, inspired me and left me with no choice but to take the leadership positions, which I am humbled that the Shark Dwellers Movement have uh, entrusted me with such 
a big uh, responsibility. However, so much has been achieved. There has been a lot of victories. The movement has grown to have been the biggest social movement to have emerged in post-apartheid South Africa. So I want to salute my comrades who have worked with me side by side, but many people from around the world who have become comrades standing in solidarity with us. So this is the story that I think it's important for people from around the world to know that as individuals, we cannot win the battle. The work is so enormous. It requires that we build allies and, 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 and and, 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 and Alice, you know, so, 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 so that we are able to confront uh, the systemic oppression that uh, the, our people continue to suffer. I mean, you will recall that South Africa is one of the most unequal societies in the world. So we need to do something. So duty to God, duty to my country has been in my vein and um, I needed to do something. And I'm grateful that I have not been able to do this as an individual, but it is through my comrades, friends, partners and allies from across the world who have really helped us navigate. For mm. me, this leadership is about, it's not about you, it's about us. As we define the human being in relation to others, no human being can be defined in isolation to others. This is what has made me, this is what has brought me into the journey that I, I am. That's, um, you know, the South African adage, I'm only a person because of other people. The idea that, that it's this collective humanity that we must uplift. And I must say that your passion and your courage comes through um, your voice. Um, and I can see that. And that's one of the questions we were thinking about is how do we ignite this courage in others, particularly today when we're going through a huge generational shift where we're getting young people who will now be the majority, how do we keep them engaged in our work? You know, I think one thing that might be helpful to people is for each of you to share something that you personally had to overcome. I, I'm hearing, you know, Shirley, you with your father's death and uh, Kesha with the bird that you saw and with uh, Sabu when he saw that baby and he saw the the, the, the poblacions being burnt and the, the slums being burnt. Um, and this inspired us. But what can we say about a challenge you've overcome? And then... What's the benefit of this work? How does it make you feel? I mean, I can feel your power and your grace and your compassion, but so an obstacle and a benefit of courageous leadership. Shirley, I'm looking at okay. you. <laughs> well, one of the things, you know, I grew up in a very conservative, conservative area where we were taught that you had to stand behind your man and support the, the work of the men. So here I am organizing with farmers who, who thought that women had their place, which even in churches, women couldn't go up into the pulpit. You know, that was reserved for men. And now all of a sudden I have to break through this. I have to get beyond what I was taught by my grandmother mm -hmm. to, to actually step out and do the work that I needed to do. I ended up in organizations that were led by men but I concentrated on the work I had to do with the people. And then that work just sort of pushed me forward. People started looking at some of the successes we were having, um, even with saving Black-owned farmland. And that went from not just with Black farmers, but to working with white farmers um, 
also, and I just, I just need to say that the white farmer who stepped forward when Breitbart targeted me and I was fired from the Obama administration, <coughs> today is his birthday and we always talk. He was 99 years old today. I just really wanted to say that. <laughs> That's beautiful. So you had that support. All right, so you overcame the, um, the the, the idea of being a woman, which I can share with you, because that's another big change that we've been through in our lifetimes. And, and um, what's the benefit to you right now? If, when you look back, you go like, I've lived a life of service. But what is that? It helped me to step out and begin looking at myself as a leader in this work. Because as long as I wouldn't accept that, then I was just there to I was doing the work, but that work was was being, you know, everyone thought it was the work of whoever the man was who was leading or the men uh, in, in many cases. But when I got beyond that barrier to my thinking and to, to um, that was really holding me back with a lot of the work, then I could step out and, and really, really grow in this work and help others to grow. Beautiful, because that's a courageous thing to do in itself for a woman to stand up. Yes. Um, show tell us a little bit about any obstacle you overcame that you think is something that people can learn from and also the benefits. We can see your beauty and your power, but tell us a little bit about how this has enriched your life. Sure. So, yeah, as a child and as a young girl starting out in the international arena, I faced uh, cyberbullying, severe cyberbullying, death wow. threats, threats of physical abuse, uh, harassment from older youth. So when I was 12, I got elected as global coordinator for children and youth at the United Nations Environment Program. And I faced tremendous harassment from some older youth, actually all of whom were uh, men who couldn't handle a 12-year-old girl in a position of power. And, you know, those kinds of threats and uh, stalking and bullying, they have continued to this day. But for me, it was really choosing between my passion for my work and uh, my fear of these horrible people. And my uh, passion for my work always uh, wins. So that is why at Green Hope Foundation, we love that. Really, really Go ahead. Yeah. So that's why at Green Hope Foundation, we are so committed to creating safe spaces for everyone, no matter who they are, just so that they can follow their passions, follow their dreams, and then turn those dreams into a reality and just having the freedom to dare to dream. So that mm -hmm. is what, uh, you know, we uh, do at Green Hope Foundation. And it's just really about understanding that when you do good work, there are always going to be naysayers. So it's just, uh, you know, important that we don't let them win. I consider right. myself really fortunate to have had a uh, tremendously strong support system in my parents uh, who stood by me the entire uh, way and in my Green Hope Foundation team as well. But there are a lot of people around the world who unfortunately don't have that same support system. And I think it's really important that, you know, just as a global community, we come together and just uplift one another and then just continue uh, the good work and focus on viewing our world's greatest challenges as our main enemy and not 
each other. So I think that's really important. That's something I've learned uh, in my line of work as well. Well, the other thing that I think is important about your work is that it's global and that the younger generations are global. They see themselves as as global citizens, not just from their country, and that you give them that opportunity. But I'm I'm interested in the fact that you were talking about this bullying and, and a lot of your work must be done through technology, correct? I mean, through connecting people virtually? Well, uh, during the, the pandemic, well, during the pandemic, yes, we have engaged in a lot of dialogues, but honestly, I think just to address your point about uh, the relationship between young people and technology, I think that as a youth-led organization, we seek to dispel these kinds of uh, notions that people hold about young people-led organizations, that it is just, uh, you know, it's more on the tech side because we are a grassroots uh, movement that is really about creating change at the ground level. So yes, while we do use technology as a way to spread awareness and, you know, it's all about positive messaging, our uh, work is on the ground. So for us, it's technology is just another tool that exists to uh, use, but, but you know, we use it for good. I've faced uh, the impacts of people using it for not so good. But like yeah, uh, at the end of the day, it, it's just about the ground level work and, uh, and that is exactly what we do. It's beautiful. So Ru, what, what was a challenge that you overcame to do your work? Um, and as you look back on your life, what are some of the benefits of dedicating yourself to courageous leadership and to making the kind of change that you've helped promote? Yeah, um, just before uh, I get to that question, I just want to quickly address the what courageous leadership means to me, uh, with your permission, of course. Of course. Yeah, for me, um, I mean, uh, gets driven by the deep sense of one's love for humanity and humankind. Um, I think it's, it's very important. And for me, it means uh, courage, um, principle, and determination. Um, commitment to justice and equality, for mm. me, is key and, and for a willingness to humanize the world a little better. This is what uh, a courageous leader will do for me, will make every effort to humanize the world illegally. Now, getting back to your second question, I have actually faced a number of uh, death threats, uh, uh, including a couple of attempts to my life. Mm. Um, I, I, I have survived that, um, uh, uh, you know, those difficult um, circumstances. And I know how difficult it is to, to live under the shadow of death, there was a moment where I thought death was inevitable. I had uh -huh. to think about the things that I had in life. That was the extent to which I had accepted that death was inevitable. So, however, with the God's grace, and I, I am still alive because there's a particular mission that I was, I think I was sent to save. Uh, now, I have not yet fulfilled that. Now, people tend to respect you uh, for that. Uh, your community become your first line. I'm noticing with all of us and it, the, that sense of a purpose, of spiritual truth, of that inner self that guides us. 
which, um, you know, I've done a lot of work in servant leadership, and that's the core that drives the servant leader as well. So, Sabu, you're still, um, I'm picturing your country and how beautiful it is and where you are and, and that you're with us. Um, but I, I was hearing um, that. Go ahead. One of the days. Yes, um, I am reminded of one moment where I was arrested, I was tortured in the, in the police custody, I was beaten, done all of that, and the whole night I needed to think whether or not I should proceed with this. You know, sometimes when you are alone, that's the extent to which it reached. So I was refused uh, medical attention after being assaulted by the police in the police custody the whole night. And then the next morning when I appeared in court uh, and I had not answered that question, whether or not I'm going to proceed with this. But guess what? When I saw these courtrooms being filled with red t-shirts, those uh, were Abashali members, uh, the organization members, coming into their numbers in my support, in solidarity with me, the court was fully packed. So when I walked in the courtroom, when I saw red in courts, then I knew it was worth continuing. That's where I made a decision. So I'm saying the point that I'm trying to make is that the power of, that comes with organizing, the very same people you are trying to um, you know, assist, lead, if they show the equal commitment and take risk in the way that you do, you get encouraged. So these are some of the experiences that really encourage me, that keep me going. So when I see those people smiling, uh, supporting me side by side, receiving those calls, how are you doing? So for me, I think uh, that's the gift that humanity can actually give. So as leaders, as much as we give, we should also not underestimate the amount of support, love, and, and courage that comes with those that we intend to, to, to support, to lead. Mm -hmm. You know, I only wish, listening to your story, it touches me deeply. <clears throat> I only wish, you know, when we turn on the television and the news, they talk about people like you. <laughs> they talk about those people that have had the courage to stand and, and to um, be there for others and to help organize them and to give them focus and vision. And, and so <clears throat> your stories are, are so empowering to me um, and to the people that will listen to this. So if you were going to, as we come to a close with our discussion, what would be a piece of advice you would give a young leader or an emerging leader or somebody who says, okay, I've done my work, now it's my time to get involved. What piece of advice would you give them? Shirley, can we start with you? When I think back to the civil rights movement, one of our songs was freedom is a constant struggle. That was a saying. And so you can't think that you can start today and in five days you've solved the problem. It's a constant struggle and you can't get discouraged because you didn't win this time. You have to look speak in the next year and so forth. And then, you know, there's another song we had, keep your eyes on the prize and yeah. hold on. Yeah. You know, you have to stay focused. Um, yes, um, it's just not, it, it, it seems impossible. It, it, it's not easy, but, um, you know, look to the morning because the morning will come and things can change. So just, you know, I'm, I'm so impressed with the knowledge of young people and, um, and know that they have so much to offer, so much energy and so many gadgets to be able to use in the work today. 
and I know that they will will um, make make big uh, accomplishments in this work in their work. And, and by listening and learning from someone like you, they know the path that needs to be followed step by step yeah. every day as we walk our talk and as we bring courageous leadership to our planet. Um, Kesha, can you share with me also, I was going to say tambien in Spanish. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, I agree uh, completely with Shirley that, you know, this is a really long process. I think a lot of people and, you know, that really includes young uh, people as well, don't grasp how much hard work is required uh, when you're working towards really creating a better world. And it, yeah, you're not going to see the, um, results sometimes first and like you know even in your lifetime but at the end of the day it is about something bigger uh than you and i think that hard honest hard work is really really important so and sticking with uh, that cause that's extremely right, important right. you know i still get people who are uh, i meet after uh, maybe uh, five ten years who then uh i met them at my first conference when i was uh 11 or 12 and then they're like oh you're still doing this and i find it <laughs> I, I find it really surprising because yes of course i'm doing it because i'm it's something i'm really passionate about but i understand why they say that to me because there are so many people i've seen who just just uh, phased out of this uh, right. movement. So I think that that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think with the advent of social media and technology, it's really easy to just look at someone else's life and be like, oh, that's exactly who I have to be in order to become a change maker or an activist or an advocate. But, you know, it's really important that we define our own path of success. I think that's especially for really everyone, but young people yes, now who are really impressionable I'd say and just defining that own path of success and finding out what your passion is and what uh, avenues you're most comfortable with taking in order to bring about change that's really important so once you find your own unique uh, journey and path of success it'll become much easier for you to you know, find what actions you can take to bring about change so yeah those are the two things that I'd put out there and Sabu, one of the things that was so um, important about what you said was that your supporters came when you were jailed and they were there. That idea of building that collective force for change, that we don't do it on our own. And so what advice would you give to people who want to be part of your movement and these social movements where we're all trying to build this equitable, compassionate and green world? Yes, I, I just want to conclude with two quotes, uh, actually. Uh, one is from the founder of the Boy Scouts Association. His name was Lord Baden Powell. He says, um, try to leave the earth a better place than you have found it. Mm -hmm. I found it so profound that in all our actions, we should try to leave the earth the better place uh, than we have found it. But the second one uh, is from Franz Fanon, um, who says, each generation must discover its mission, fulfill it or betray it. Now, all of us must have a mission one way or the other mm -hmm. to fulfill and uh, strive for the rest of our life to fulfill it or betray it. And I, I think, that's very key for me, for any young person, you know, to have a vision for a better world, to try and humanize the world 
have respect for life, have respect for humanity. If you do that, then the life and the humanity will have respect for you. Now, the last one is to act non-violently. Now, Martin Luther the King Jr. once said, dark cannot drive dark, only light can do so. So I urge everyone to take a non-violent approach or strategy in all our efforts to humanize the world. Mm. It's beautiful. Well, as we approach uh, an important day of Thanksgiving in the next week, I want to be very grateful for the circle of life that we've had today, for all of your work and efforts, for the inspiration and courage you give all of us, and to thank you for what you have contributed to humanity and to our upliftment. And I'd like to turn it over to John Burkhart to just do some closing remarks. But I hope that we meet again. Yes. I, I just want to thank everyone. I heard passion. I also heard compassion. I heard uh, people who uh, were willing to forgive even the most vicious treatment and to forgive themselves when they were not able to achieve everything that they hoped to as quickly as, as we all might hope. Uh, I also heard people talk about a, moon, a moment in their lives that, that caused them to want to respond differently than what might have been predicted. And, 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 a, and a sense of having been called to action. Uh, surely, I couldn't help but notice the book, The Courage to Hope, behind you. And uh, that gift of hope that courageous leaders provide to others is such an incredibly important uh, uh, sustaining aspect of all of our lives that yes, the, the world will be better for, for, for our efforts. Uh, Wanna thank you so much for leading this conversation. I also uh, need to point out that Wana was part of the selection committee that chose these three honorees and also helped us to appreciate all the others that were nominated. And Wana was joined in that by uh, Betty Overton, by Cynthia Cherry of uh, the International Leadership Association. And the group was chaired by Roger Sublet, who was uh, recently president of the Union Institute and University and a long time friend of Lorraine uh, Matusak. Uh, I also feel that we must recognize Rick Foster, whose leadership uh, resulted in uh, this program today. And I have to say uh, to Lorraine, to, to uh, Lauren Augusta, and to David Castro, who provided technical support, heroic work on your part. Uh, not everything turned out exactly as we uh, might have hoped, but isn't that the case in so many <laughs> aspects of our lives? In fact, Zabud, just uh, in our uh, preparation call just the other day, had been without electricity for uh, several hours. And so uh, we know that there are challenges in the technology we face. And thank goodness there are people like Lauren and David and others who are able to master it. I just want to thank everyone who uh, came together. This has been a very inspiring call. Uh, and I, I sense from what I hear that we take that seriously. We know the world is watching. We know that the world is wondering, can we reverse these circumstances and create a better world uh, than the one that we inherited? And, and you certainly give hope to that 
that possibility. Uh, thank you for your support for the uh, Alliance of Leadership Fellows. It's a group that's really, really trying hard to identify and nurture leadership, ethical leadership on behalf of social justice around the world. And if you're interested in knowing more about what we do or want to get involved, you can go to our website uh, and help us build better, safer, and more just societies. Thank you all very much for your time and your contributions today. More importantly, thank you for all that you're doing on behalf of, of all of us.